Southwestern Family of Companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. On this episode, we are pleased to welcome Julia Burston, Senior Media and Tech Correspondent for CNBC, and a former writer for Fortune Magazine, as well as contributor to CNN Headline News. She has also done work for the State Department, and for then-Vice President Al Gore's Domestic Policy Office. Most recently, Julia has authored the book When Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and How We Can Learn From Them. That book is available now. We hope you enjoy today's talk. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. This is Dan Moore, and we're really excited today to be spending our time with Julia Borston. Julia's going to share some information with us about her book, but we also want to learn a bit more about her. So, Julia, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thank you. It's great to be here. One of the fun things we like to find out are some of those most important pivot points in your past, that you're headed off in a certain direction, something moved in a different direction, moved in a different direction. And I hear you are very important in the broadcast world, social media world, business world, and an author. So... How does that all happen for an English major from Princeton? A history major from Princeton, uh, even further afield. Um, look, my my whole life, I always loved doing journalism. I was on the newspaper in high school. I was on the the Daily Princetonian uh, at college. I was an editor at the news on the newspaper at college, and I never thought I would be a professional journalist. But I knew I always loved telling stories asking people questions. I always ask everyone too many questions. It's my my nature. And I just love storytelling and creative nonfiction. I took a great writing class in college that really influenced me for the writer, John McPhee, who's a phenomenal writer and an amazing teacher. And that made me think that maybe this was something that I would want to do professionally. And then when I graduated college, I applied to a bunch of magazines in New York. And uh, the best job opportunity I got was at a magazine I didn't think I was going to be interested in working for, which is Fortune magazine. I had never taken an econ class. I didn't think business news would be interesting, but it was a reporter role and not a fact-checking or assistant role. So I figured I should take the opportunity to have the better role at a publication that maybe I thought I cared less about. But of course, I joined Fortune magazine and found business news to be so fascinating and such a great window to tell stories about people and trends and the world. And so I really fell in love with the whole business world sector and felt very lucky to have some amazing mentors and teachers there who gave me a little business school boot camp and taught me how to read SEC documents and analyst notes and help me make up for the fact that I hadn't taken econ. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, that's a pretty significant shift there. One of the fun things about your story is that you're very people-oriented. In fact, when you created your Disruptor 50, which is a very innovative ranking of companies making a big difference, I think you really were focused on the founders and the leaders in those companies and their stories. Yes. So um, a little bit more than 10 years ago, about 10 and a half years ago now, I was reporting on Facebook's IPO. And I was really struck by how this was a company that had a very different approach to business and to connecting people and even to advertising than a lot of other companies. And yes, there have been other social networks, but this one was really working. And I thought we need to get these companies, their founders, their approaches on the radar of CNBC viewers long before they're public. These companies and the disruptive approaches of their founders 
are relevant because someday the private startups will either be the public giants or they're forcing the public large incumbents to change the way they do business. So I've always been fascinated by innovators and also what enables founders of startups to really think differently and take risks, not only take risks and just starting a company because that's a big risk to begin with, does it take risks in how they do things and approach problems? Very true. Now, in your own life, have you ever run into a brick wall? One of these, you're moving right along, everything's going great. All of a sudden, this major disruption occurs in your own pathway. You know, we all run into brick walls all the time. And I think the most successful people are those who choose not to see a brick wall as a brick wall, right? Maybe a brick wall is a diversion and sending you on a different path. I feel like I've been really lucky in my career to have so many great mentors and opportunities. But, you know, it's like the question is, if you have a brick wall, how do you build a door into it? I think every day in reporting every story, there are challenges. You know, I cover a lot of companies and I have sources at these companies. Sometimes there's a lot of upheaval and all my sources will leave a company and I'll feel like I'll have to start from scratch. But I don't think I've actually experienced anything that I would characterize as a brick wall or I would choose to see it's a brick wall. And there's two different things. It may be one, but it's how you choose to see it that makes all the difference. Now, in terms of your own personal development, you are very successful broadcast personality could continue in that mode, but you got motivated to write a book. So share a little bit about this book with us. It's out now. It's called When Women Lead. And we're really, really curious about how this came about. Well, I've always loved to write. And, you know, back from the time I was in college, I loved to write. And I was at Fortune Magazine for six years and really loved writing long profiles of, of big business personalities. So I knew I loved to write. And I always had this fantasy that I would write a book because I love to read books. I love to listen to books on Audible. I always have a piece of nonfiction and also a fiction book that I'm reading. And I greatly admire so many different nonfiction writers in particular. I wanted to write this book because I was so impressed by some of these leaders who I was interviewing um, in my role at CNBC. And I wanted more of an opportunity to tell their stories in a longer format. You know, TV is always a very short format. I wanted to tell their stories with with more time and space to do so, but also to really dig in to what the characteristics were that enabled them to succeed, you know, to do a little bit of analysis. And what I found in reporting my book, and I interviewed 150 different people, and I feature the stories of about 65 people, is that digging into these stories, there are actual techniques and strategies that people are using and oftentimes don't even know that they're using. So I wanted my my book to go beyond just the storytelling into real analysis and research. So I read hundreds, hundreds of um, academic research uh, studies, and I then applied what I found in those studies to the women I profile. So I think the combination of the data and the research and the academic approach with the storytelling really enabled me to understand what these women were doing. I know that in your book, you highlight some very specific strengths that women who are in leadership can bring that for many generations, men who typically ran the universe didn't bring those same strengths. Could you pick one or two of those and elaborate for us, please? Well, there are many of them, but I would say just to to respond to what you just said, you're right. I think for many years, there was this archetype of what leadership looked like, what a leader looked like. And he was typically male and typically white. And he typically led in a very confident, top-down, top-down way. And I think what's really interesting is what I found in my research and in my interviewing, is there are many different ways to lead. There's not just one right way to lead. And no leaders are born great leaders. Everyone has to develop and hone their leaderships, their leadership strengths. And I think that the fact that every leader has grown their skills 
is very inspiring for me because it means that we can all get better at what we do and, and no one comes out fully formed as an amazing leader. Um, in terms of some of the traits that stick out, I think adaptability is huge. And also this idea of contextual thinking and communal leadership, this idea that women are more likely to look at the big picture, try to pull in threads from related topics to understand the fullest context of a problem or business opportunity. And then in leading in those situations, lead in a sort of a communal way. And what that means is pull in ideas from across an organization. Companies are found to be more successful if they enable the broadest possible sharing of ideas. And women leaders are known to be very good at drawing diverse ideas from across an organization. Now, because of these archetypes about what leadership is all about, do some women attempt to model the behaviors of men with disastrous consequences? I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I think that um, it, it's interesting looking at these archetypes. In, in the media, there's been a big focus on Elizabeth Holmes. She's a disaster story. She's not featured in my book. But I think that it's hard to talk about female leaders and not talk about the archetypes that are so dominant, even if they don't represent female leadership as a whole. And one reason I wanted to write this book is because I think there's such a media focus on the big failures and not enough emphasis on all the success stories. Elizabeth Holmes modeled herself on Steve Jobs and created this image that was, you know, with the turtleneck and her whole persona. But she also was stuck in a feedback loop where she wasn't acknowledging her company's weaknesses and their failures. And um, I think that if she was an example of someone who has failed with spectacular results, it would be her. But I think what's really interesting is the women who I profile in the studies I've seen have found that not only do women succeed when they draw on their own strengths, which may be very different from the archetypal male leadership styles. Maybe it's leading with vulnerability. Maybe it's leading with empathy. Maybe it's doing a really good job of bringing in diverse ideas. But what's fascinating is not only do those skill sets help women, but when men lead with those approaches, it helps them as well. There's no question about that. Just the ability to zoom out instead of being so tightly zoomed in, the ability to empathize, the ability to understand before jumping into decision-making. It doesn't matter what your gender is. Those are really incredibly important leadership traits. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more that everyone, male and female, can look at these amazing leaders who've defied the odds, these women who have defied the, the statistics that, you know, women are just 8% of the CEOs of the Fortune 500, female founders in the tech space get just 3% of all venture capital dollars. We all want to learn from exceptional people. And by definition, the women who have defied those odds and succeeded despite all the statistics that would indicate that it'd be so hard for them to thrive, we can all, both male and female, learn so much from them. I mean, look, the statistics are interesting because right now women are graduating from college at higher rates than men are. They're graduating from grad school at higher rates than men are, but women are still underrepresented in the computer science space. And even though there have been gains in recent years, um, it's been interesting to see how there was a big drop-off in the 80s in the number of women studying computer science and what needs to be done to help educate all students about these tech tools that we all need to have in order to succeed um, in this high-tech future that we're all going to be living in. So I think that there is a sense that, you know, a lot of tech companies want to broaden the pipeline. They want to invest in better tech education and get more women to study computer science because that's a huge opportunity moving forward. Well, it's very true. And despite what some supposedly erudite people think, there is no preference in gender for math, science, and STEM fields. 
Each patient has amazing abilities. I've got a former colleague in the Czech Republic who worked with Ernst Young in the IT group. And she got so tired of women saying, well, I guess I could work as maybe an account manager or maybe in the office, but I could never be in the tech world. And she said, but I'm in the tech world. Well, you're just different, Dita. And so she actually left that firm and started a nonprofit called Czechitas for Czech instead of Czechitas, Czechitas, all focused on getting girls in high school, focused on STEM studies and the belief factor inside that they could in fact do as well, if not better than the men in those fields that used to be pretty gender specific. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason that tech should be a gender specific world. There's no data indicating that there's any gender preference. So many of these things are just socialized and sort of culturally instituted stereotypes. And part of it is from the media and the movie industry and, the, and the, some of the storytelling that's really been ingrained that tech is a more male field. But hopefully um, all the data and all the, the people like those you're talking about now can help start to change that. It's a huge financial opportunity if more women are participating in those fields. Absolutely right. All for it. Well, i got another question for you. Do you have a morning routine to start your day? I have a funny answer to this question because I wake up really early because I work East Coast hours for CNBC, but I'm on the West Coast. And I start my day for CNBC on a conference call at 8.15 a.m. Eastern, which is 5.15 Pacific. So I am up and out of bed every day by 4.45 Pacific. My whole strategy with getting out of bed that early is I have to get everything ready the night before. I don't want to have to make any decisions about what I'm wearing, I don't want to have to worry about where my headphones are so I can listen to the conference call without waking up my family. I have to lay everything out. My husband jokes that I'm like a fireman. I have everything ready to go. I can leap out of bed, put on my clothes. I shower the night before. I do everything I can right before I go to bed. So I'm really ready to go in the morning. Sometimes that's helpful when there's breaking news and I get a phone call at three in the morning. Elon Musk is buying Twitter, get in front of the camera and I have to get from my bed, you know, in front of the camera in my home studio uh, very quickly. So it's it's very useful to hone my ability to turn on my brain very quickly in the morning. A lot of people need a lot of time to get warmed up. I can be in front of the camera in 40 minutes from the moment I woke up, ready to talk coherently <laughs> if there's a big breaking news situation. That's two different things, talk and coherently. Yeah, but I actually, I applied the magic of early morning starts to my book writing process. You know, I have young kids. I didn't take a book leave, but I did work on the weekends on this book. I took days off here and there. And what I found is that the best way for me to make progress on writing the book was to wake up early and get three or four hours of uninterrupted work done anytime I had a day off or on the weekends. So I wake up at 4.45 on the weekdays. I would wake up at 5 or 5.15. I'd make a pot of coffee and I would just get straight to work. And for me, at least, not having the opportunity to get distracted or getting sidetracked, it just let my brain hone in on what was going to be my goals for that day and just dive right into work. And I think one thing that really helps me, especially if I'm doing something like writing, is to set out my goals the night before to say, okay, tomorrow morning you're working on this part of this chapter and you want to get through this character or you have to re-edit, go back and edit this part of the chapter and just knowing what my goals were. So I didn't have to wonder when I woke up. Instead of just getting up and wondering what I had to do, I would say, okay, I'm just going to get up, drink my coffee, get straight to work. Well, the subconscious mind responds better to some direction than just randomness. So when you set that direction the night before, it makes all kinds of sense. And thank goodness for programmable coffee makers, right? <laughs> Caffeine is my friend. Well, I totally understand that. Well, Julia, one thing I wanted to ask you, many of our listeners are very successful in their pathways through life. Things are going great for them personally, professionally, socially. 
Got some other listeners, though, that are really kind of at the end of their rope. What advice would you give to somebody that just is stuck? There's so much opportunity in talking to your network. You may not realize you have a network, but everyone has people in their orbit. People reach out to me all the time. Maybe they're not friends. Maybe they're just people I've met through a friend of a friend or I've met in a work context. But I think that there is great capacity um, and, and the world has great capacity to help other people or to even have a, just an open conversation about what you're interested in. So I think that for those who, who feel like they're at a dead end, sometimes it helps just to make a list of people you know not your closest network, but people you know who are sort of a little bit outside your inner circle, send an email, say what you're interested in, ask to have a background conversation, um, to pick their brains. And I think if you just have those conversations, you're putting out into the universe that you're interested in change, interested in a job opportunity, and also able to get ideas from each conversation you have. I find making lists of people you know, and then from each of those lists, asking those people you've talked to for more ideas, more recommendations. Um, people are often willing to have a 15-minute conversation and sometimes that's all you need to jog an idea to, to get some um, creative juices flowing. And the other thing I think is so interesting about the world we're in right now is there's so many new opportunities for people to create content, to explore ideas and to do things without external help, right? Before, if you wanted to publish an article, you need to have a relationship with the newspaper. If you were going to launch a company, you needed lots of resources. Now, whether it's because of LinkedIn, you know, Instagram, or all of these different tools that make it easy to like Airtable, make it easy to launch an app, the barriers to entry have come down. And so I think if there's something that you're passionate about and something you want to try, any opportunity you have to go down that route to try something new and give yourself that space and whether it's just one day on a Saturday, you know, I'm going to try writing something that I really care about, or I'm going to try to create a business plan just to, to try to explore, because I do think there's opportunity now in the fact that the barriers to entry and the cost of launching something new or creating a new app or new business have come down. Well, they certainly have, but all the inputs and the noise in the environment has also increased a lot. So a clear message, a clear drive, a clear purpose, a clear why. Unpacking a couple of things you said when you said, first of all, lean into your network. And the next thing you said was, you may not even realize you have a network. Yeah. One of my, my mentors has this idea of creating a map of everyone you know. She's amazing. She's brilliant. Her name is Desiree Gruber, and she runs a company called Full Picture. And she believes that everyone has a network that they don't even understand how big it is. And so she creates these maps of who you know. And so I think that that's really valuable. And, you know, sometimes I go into LinkedIn and I say, like, who do I know based in Seattle? who might know this person. And it's just amazing to see how broad our networks are. And there's something about these social platforms or the likes of LinkedIn that let us kind of understand how to get to someone or how to get to a company because we're all connected. You know, we're all connected. So many of the women in my book, they succeeded because they were very persistent about using, actually using LinkedIn to find investors, using LinkedIn to get an in. One woman in the book, Katrina Lake, hired her head of data by messaging the head of data at Netflix and asking him if he wanted to come work for her. So I think the like the cold call isn't as cold as it used to be, right? Because you could find connections, even if they're very tenuous connections, through the likes of LinkedIn. And I think this idea of mapping your network, who do I know in this field? Who do I know in this field? And it doesn't have to be people you have close ties to. Very true. You know, there used to be this notion of six degrees of separation. 
but I think Facebook has been largely responsible as well as LinkedIn for that now being somewhere between three and four degrees of separation all over the world. Yeah. Who links to whom? Who do I know? How did this relationship come about? Brilliant idea. Some everybody can practice. Absolutely. Well, Julia, we're excited for you and we're excited for your book. I can't wait to read it myself. I want to thank you so much for everything you shared with us here today on The Action Catalyst. Keep on doing the good that you do because it makes a big difference. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that The Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore action. Thanks for listening.